everybody. One of the things I've been praying for the people in the Christians specifically in Afghanistan is a lot. I think it's Luke 9:26, but I could be wrong in the passage. But it says, um, "Whoever is Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words." The Son of Man will be ashamed of him or that person when he comes in all his glory. And I think I've been praying for my brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that they would not be ashamed of Jesus and his work. And it breaks my heart that they're going to, many of them will be killed for their faith. What breaks my heart even more is that I need to pray the same thing for myself. That I would not be ashamed of him and his words in my state that I'm in, my circumstances are polar opposite. And I need to pray for myself that I won't be ashamed of him and his words either. And so in that sense, we're praying for ourselves. We ought to pray the same thing for ourselves that we're praying for our Christians, Christians uh, brothers and sisters across the globe. And so um, last two weeks, there's, the Lord has reminded me of something this last two weeks, and that's uh, many things actually. One of the things he reminded me of is that it is a real, genuine passion of mine to talk to people about Jesus. And it doesn't matter who they are. Uh, and I had an opportunity to talk to somebody who literally has no idea who Jesus is. And that's like, I'm like, what? How do you not know? And it's so awesome. I'm like, oh, I am actually, you can pray for them. That the Lord would just, man, I would love to have a follow-up conversation with them, but it's the ball's in their court. And I also realize I like talking to people about Jesus who know Jesus maybe just as good as I do or better. And it's still good to talk about Jesus. Peter said the same thing. He, he said it was good for him to remind those people who are already firmly established. And that was his privilege. To, and he said he was going to continue to do that as long as he lived in the tent of this body. And that's kind of my goal too. And I just realized I love talking about Jesus. And that's what we're going to do here again this morning. So let me just... Uh, let me just talk to him for a moment longer. Lord, Jesus, we just love you. Feel, Lord, like there is a kinship, there's a body, like a collective uh, desire in this room. I think that most, if not all, of the people in this room, Lord, wants to be closer to you. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would open up our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in, your, in the scriptures, that you would draw us even right now this morning, as we engage with you in, your, in the Bible and open to your Holy Spirit's leading and nudging and prompting, Lord, could you just come and speak and spur us on? And then when we leave here today, Lord, and go on with our, for the most part, of what is actually incredibly luxurious type of living, I pray that we would not become apathetic, but that we would unashamedly proclaim your name even this week. And testify even to what you have done for us, even here this morning. We just invite you, Lord, come and stir, shake this place, Lord, that we would speak your name boldly. Amen. So we're working on a series of messages called <laughs> John. And if, uh, if you've been attending Pansy Chapel at all, like we're in part 19 this morning. We've been here a while, and we're going to be here a while. And if you're new to Pansy Chapel, oh man, welcome. And uh, we do some pretty goofy things in Pansy Chapel. 
we don't have any chandeliers to swing from, but we do sometimes when I put uh, scriptures up on the screen, there's yellow words, and I love it if people read along with the yellow words, and that just helps us to engage in the scriptures, and so you might notice that later as we read through some scripture. But I want to just remind us a little bit where we've come from in this John series, okay? The last series, last week, Steve Pateau talked about um, who John is, how he tells stories, and stuff like that, and, and pulled out some powerful truths about how John uh, connected with people like that. And, and the time before that, the last specific John series message, part 18, was way back like three weeks ago on August 1. And then we talked about textual criticism. And if you don't know what that is, you could, you'll have to go back and listen to that one. We talked about conviction versus condemnation. We talked about Jesus as judge versus him being judgmental. And then the point of all that was that we would believe it and not just know it. And if you don't know the difference between knowing something and believing something, again, you'd have to go back to that, ser that sermon or even some of the previous ones. Three weeks ago, we also mentioned that there is a word in the book of John that John uses way more times than any other author in the New Testament. Do you remember what that word is? It is exactly Father. Well done. Nobody, by the way, nobody in the first service knew, so clearly 11 o'clock service is where it's at. So uh, we, we mentioned that that word Father is used in the book of John more often than any, any other book, and most of the times that it's used... Jesus is using it in such a way to claim equality with God the Father. And he is, the people who heard him actually thought he was being blast, he was blaspheming because of his claim to be God. And John um, seems to unashamedly point that out over and over and over. That's one of the things that he points out many times in his book. And today as we read through the last half of chapter 8, you're going to see that word is going to get used many times again. But Jesus is not only going to use it to claim equality with God. Today, he is actually going to point out how his listeners, some of his listeners, actually were misusing that same word. And he is going to dismantle what they are saying because they were dead wrong. And so this is fascinating. But another name that's going to come up 11 times in this last half of John chapter 8 is the name Abraham. You guys know who Abraham is? Raise your hand if you know who Abraham is. Okay, somebody tell me, who is Abraham? Th there you go, Isaac's father. Good answer. Just because we, need a, we might need a little refresher of who Abraham is, I'm going to go at like warp speed through the Old Testament and tell you kind of who Abraham is, okay? Because we are going to end the sermon with a prayer exercise that's going to kind of wrap around a little bit about what Abraham was known for. But here's the Old Testament in a real quick nutshell. I'm going to go through some names, but those are not all necessarily father, son, father, son. The green dots would represent like there's a significant amount of time that lapsed in between there, okay? But the Bible starts with Adam and Eve. And shortly after Adam and Eve, the Bible very quickly gets to the story of Noah and his family of eight that are saved. One of Noah's sons, his name is Shem, and God selects him, and you can trace his family lineage down to Abraham. 
And God has already chosen them that that's the, and gives, there's a Semitic blessing, a Shemitic blessing really, that comes down into Abraham's line. And Abraham is known as the first patriarch in the Old Testament. And God calls Abraham to leave his family and go to a new land. And then God promises Abraham that his family will become a great nation. But there's a problem. What's the problem? Yeah, Abraham's married, but he and his wife cannot have any children. And so God meets him another time and shows him the stars in the sky and tells him that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believes what God says. Eventually, Abraham does have children. And one of his sons, Isaac, would become known as another patriarch in the Old Testament. And Isaac has uh, a number of sons, but one of his sons' name is Jacob. And Jacob's name would eventually turn to Israel. And we know that Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons of his own, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you were going to limit, there's a number of patriarchs in the Old Testament, but if you were going to limit it to three, typically it would, it, you would be talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a family lineage right there. So I guess Joseph would be part of that too. And then you have a bit of an expanse of time, but it's a fascinating story. But through Joseph, there's a, a dire circumstance. The Israelite people end up in Egypt. At first, they're treated like royalty. But then soon, uh, over a period of a couple hundred years, they become treated like slaves. That's where Moses fits in. God sends Moses to rescue his people and God ends up giving his law through Moses. The law is a set of commandments which, if obeyed, would keep the people close to God. But now if you fast forward from Moses through the time of the judges and then the kings and the prophets and all that, and then there's a silent period, but, and then you get into the time of Jesus, there's a group of religious followers who are religiously following that law that Moses gave. But they've begun to pride themselves on what good rule followers they are. In fact, they start making some new rules for themselves to follow. And they take great pride in being bloodline descendants of Abraham. So Abraham is their father biologically. And by way of following rules, they're following that law that Moses gave, but they do not know God like Abraham did. And in fact, they're not doing what Abraham did. And in that sense, Abraham cannot be called their spiritual father. You catch that? That's an important thing. So if you think about in Jesus' day, there's religious followers that would be of the bloodline of Abraham, but spiritually speaking, they're not his spiritual descendants if they don't believe and do what Abraham did. Even though the fact that, even though they're religious. And by the way, a verse like Galatians 3, what was it, 29? Says that if anyone belongs to Christ, he is actually one of Abraham's descendants. Spiritually. And so if you and I belong to Christ, we are one of Abraham's descendants. But Jesus in today's reading is going to speak to a group of religious followers who were of the bloodline of Abraham, but not his descendants, spiritually. Okay? 
That's a powerful truth. And then we're going to end with what does that look like for us practically. That's how we're going to end the service. But here's the reading. John 8, verse 31 to 59. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is a fascinating thing. If you listen to the sermon that we did, I think this was one of the last ones in July, actually, when we talked about John 7, verse 17, um, that talks about how it works when somebody follows Jesus. He said, if you want to know if my teaching comes from God or not, you need to obey it. And so we learn that the, most, the best hermeneutic or the best way of interpreting Scripture is to obey it because understanding comes from obedience. We got there from John 7, 17. Now here Jesus is saying, if, this condition, you hold to my teaching, then what's going to happen? You get two things. You're going to know the truth, and what else? The truth will set you free. But they're conditional upon what? If you hold to my teaching. What's another word that would sum up hold to my teaching? Obey. It's the same thing. In fact, in your Bible, you could make a note and you could circle that and point it to John 7, 17. Jesus is repeating the same idea that if you want to know the truth and be set free, you start with obeying. And he gives, he gives that same order. And I love that word hold to his teaching because obeying Jesus is not something that you do one time. It's not a prayer that you just say one time. There's an ongoing nature to holding his teaching. But some people don't realize that they need to be set free. It doesn't feel to them like they're in bondage. That's exactly what happened to the people that Jesus is talking about here in verse 31. The Jews who had believed him, they did not know they were in bondage or at least didn't admit it. In fact, they were very religious folks who knew their Bibles well. They were direct descendants from Abraham. And yet they were under demonic influence. Can you imagine that? They wouldn't have admitted it. They might not have even known it. But they were actually under influence from Satan. But they knew the right words to say. Words like, God is my father. I'm following God. Did you know that somebody who is under the influence of Satan could actually say those words? They would just be lying. Let's read. So here it is. Then he said they... They'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. By the way, we know everyone, Romans 3.23, everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, right? Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. What's Jesus doing there? He is affirming, yes, I know you're of the bloodline of Abraham. He is your forefather. Yet, you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. 
What does it mean when, what does Jesus mean when he is saying, you don't have room for my word? You're focused on yourself. Yes? Some more. Doesn't fit in with your lifestyle. That's right. Unwillingness to be corrected. They're choosing their own path. They don't want to listen to what Jesus has to say. They don't want to believe him. They want to do their own thing. But then he says, I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. That's a bold statement. And I'll tell you, there's, that's one of many statements Jesus makes in the book of John that puts him into one ca- what category? Who, who, who could make that statement quickly? Only somebody who's been in heaven could make that statement. He's claiming equality with God. He's been in heaven. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your Father. So we already know, based on other sermons, we've covered this already, but again, when Jesus is talking about that God is his Father, he is saying it in a bigger sense than you or I say it today. You or I, we also acknowledge that he even taught us this then is how you should pray our Father in heaven, right? But when Jesus talks about his Father, he actually says it in such a way to claim equality with God. That he is God. And those people who heard him say it, that's exactly how they interpreted it. And so knowing that, Jesus here is making a statement that he is equal with God and that he speaks what God tells him to say. And then he is separating himself from them by accusing them of listening to a completely different source. A source that is not God. Jesus has acknowledged that physically they are descendants of Abraham, but now he is bluntly telling them that spiritually they are not descendants of Abraham. He is not their father. Their spiritual source is not God. And if their spiritual source isn't God, who is it? You're right. It's the devil. Satan. That's exactly what Jesus is accusing them of, and they know it. But they are religious folks, and so they try to defend themselves, and they point out this. Verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answer. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. That, by the way, is where we're going to launch the conclusion of the sermon. We're going to pray in that regard. John 8, verse 39. Okay? As it is, Jesus said, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. They're trying to follow God by following a set of religious rules and claiming then that God's their father. Jesus is having none of it. Yes, they're in Abraham's family line, but in a spiritual sense, because of something that they are not doing, they are not children of Abraham. And Jesus is speaking in such a way that he is defending Abraham as though he knew Abraham personally. Personally. 
as though he knew what Abraham did and what he thought and what he is known for. Other authors in the New Testament also knew what Abraham was known for. Do you know what it is? He's known for a couple things, really, but I'll show you because I think it's important. So just a little recap, back in Genesis 15, verse 5, God shows Abraham the stars in the sky. And he tells him, that is like the number of descendants that you are going to have. And then in the next verse, Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham, or Abram, believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. He believed the promise even before it happened. And in Romans, this is in the New Testament, in, in 4 verse 3, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 11 says the same thing. So then, he is the father of all who believe. That's where you or I come in. If we believe, we're actually like Abraham's descendants spiritually. Genesis, uh, Galatians 3 says the same thing. So also, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. James says the same thing, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. What is it that Abraham did that these religious followers of Jesus did not do? Yeah, he believed God. Even if you are of the bloodline of Abraham and you are very religious, you are not necessarily a child of God because in order to be a child of God, you must believe Jesus. Essentially, Jesus is accusing these people of being illegitimate children. But they, they continue to try to defend themselves. Okay, We'll continue reading in verse 41. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. And this doesn't mean that they don't have choice. But rather, if you remember a few sermons back, they are like the land that drinks, that, that the rain often falls on it. Except that instead of drinking in the rain and producing a crop that's useful for to those who farm it, they ignore the rain and just produce thorns, thorn bushes and thistles. In other words, they have opportunity to follow Jesus and know him, but they have not welcomed or accepted the opportunity. And now Jesus is going to tell them who their father really is. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Wouldn't you just love to sit under Jesus' teaching? 
thinking that you had it all wrapped up and you kind of knew how it worked, you realize that Jesus leaves absolutely no wiggle room. Either he is Lord and you ought to submit and surrender to him on your knees and acknowledge him as king. Or he has to be a liar or a lunatic. You with me on that? We've, we've pointed that out a number of times from the book of John, but what, what do you think these religious folks are going to choose? It's the saddest choice that anybody could ever make. Listen to what they say. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? They know that he has to either be Lord or he's a liar or lunatic. And they're picking something along the lines of liar or lunatic. How sad is that? Then just so you know, the Samaritans are a group of uh, people that are partially Jewish and partially Gentile. And there's a long-standing hatred towards the Samaritans from the Jews. And so first of all, they're trying to insult Jesus by calling him a Samaritan, which he isn't. But secondly, he doesn't receive it as an insult because he loves the Samaritans just as much as anyone else. <laughs> and it's, it's not an insult to Jesus because he's not judgmental like they are. Secondly, they have no choice but to call him demon-possessed because it's either them or him. And they don't want to acknowledge the truth. And of course, they're speaking lies, which Jesus is going to make very obvious here. Verse 49, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Those are words that we should make it our life's goal that nobody hears on Judgment Day. Do you know that? If, if you tell somebody offensive words like that in this lifetime, it's, it's actu actually, actually, it should be done out of love, but it is loving to warn somebody now while they have an opportunity to change. Agreed? So what Jesus is doing here is actually incredibly loving. And he says, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And that's another claim that only God could make to have the authority to give eternal life. Verse 52, at this they exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad Do not make the mistake to think that just because Jesus was love and the perfect example of love and everything he did resembled love, the love that he is 
perfectly fulfilled that he never spoke the truth because the truth is offensive and he is both at the same time. Do you think that the people, the religious people who heard these words, do you think they were offended? <laughs> so much so they wanted to kill him. Blasph they thought for sure this guy's blaspheming, claiming equality with God, and he's calling them followers of the, de of the devil. They had to have been offended. But do you hear what Jesus is saying here? He's talking like he knew Abraham personally. As though he was alive when Abraham was alive, and Abraham lived 2,000 years prior. That is another bold claim that no good teacher who's a human could ever make. Do you get it? There's no possible way, according to Scripture, that Jesus can only be a good teacher. He is God. If you have a good math teacher in school who claimed to be 2,000 years old and, and knows somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, he doesn't belong in your school as a teacher. I'll tell you that. You guys with me? That's a claim that only God could make. And they know that. Listen to verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they want to kill him so bad? Because he's claiming equality with God. They knew that the penalty for that is death by stoning, right? It's capital punishment. And but listen to this. If Jesus had said, before Abraham was born, I was, it would simply mean that he was claiming to be over 2,000 years old. Which, of course, would already be humanly impossible and would already make him have the nature of God who could be that old, and they would point to his eternal nature. But he doesn't use the words, I was. He uses the words, I am, which, in case you have any clue about grammar, is incorrect grammar. But Jesus isn't worried about grammar. What's he getting at? He is actually identifying, if you would read Exodus 3.14, he is identifying as the same God, the same one and only God, who was in the burning bush when Moses came up to the burning bush, the bush that was on fire but never burned up? He's, he's claiming to be that same God. The God that identified with these words, I am who I am. Jesus says, that's who I am. And of course, those who didn't believe him thought that was blasphemy, and so they picked up stones to stone him. And that's the end of chapter 8. So the name Abraham came up 11 times in that passage. And he is known for what? Believing God. And just like we discussed on August 1, there's a big difference between knowing something intellectually and actually believing it. Because when you believe it, it turns into what? turns into an action. Obedience. That's right. So here's what we're going to do to close. We're going to spend some time thinking about what the indicators would be in our lives that would show that I don't only intellectually acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, 
I actually believe it in the same way that Abraham did. Just like Galatians 3.29 says, if we belong to Christ, we are actually Abraham's descendants, inheritors or heirs of of the promised blessing. Jesus said in John 8, 39, we just read it. If you're Abraham's descendants, you would do what Abraham did. And we know that Abraham believed. But let's, let's just break down some of these passages. And we're going to make a little bit of a list of indicators of things that I would do if I believed God as Abraham did. And we're going to use those New Testament passages to pull that out. So first of all, based on Romans 4... If I want to believe and do as Abraham did, I will trust God's promises even before they're fulfilled. Listen to what it says. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though... At about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And so we know already, based on Romans 4, that if I want to believe and do as Abraham did, I'll trust God's promises before they're even fulfilled. Secondly, based on Galatians 3, I will depend on the Holy Spirit instead of my own human effort. And we get that right out of Galatians. Let's read that passage. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? There's another connection to the possibility that religious people can follow demonic influence. For the meaning of Jesus' death was Uh, Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort. Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And so we know that based on Galatians 3, If I want to believe and do as Abraham did, like Jesus says his followers will, I will depend on the Holy Spirit instead of my own human effort. And then based on James chapter 2, I will also take faith steps of action. This is what it says in James. James says, how foolish. Can't you see that faith without deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor, Abraham, was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. So launching from John chapter 8, where Jesus commends Abraham for his faith and belief in God, and then considering these three passages that show us what that looks like practically, we're just going to spend some time in prayer right now. And I'm going to ask the ushers if they can hand out a piece of paper. It's on cardstock, but I have you guys can do it right now. And there's enough there that each person here can get a copy. And on that, it's, it's written on cardstock. There's a few questions based on the, this list that we just uh, showed here. There are questions that we're going to ask the Lord. What does it look like in our own lives? And this is not a prayer that I'm going to pray for you. You're not going to pray out loud. Well, just individually between you and God, this will be a personal prayer time. And here are the questions that we're going to ask. Here are the questions that are on your paper. Okay? The first question is this. Lord Jesus, are there promises that you have given me that I'm doubting? Okay, we get there from that Romans 4 passage, and that reference is on your paper. If you want to, you could add actually Galatians 3.29 as a reference on your paper, because that's, that would be another example of a scripture that would get us to this place. But ask the Lord, Lord, are there, Jesus, are there promises you've given me that I doubt? And you could just ask him, which one of the promises do, would I be tempted to doubt? And if he brings, I'm not forcing you to, to confess something that he doesn't convict you of, but if he does bring up something that you are tempted to doubt him in, then confess it as sin and repent of it and ask God to allow you to believe in the same way that Abraham did. And then the second question, based on Galatians 3, says this, Holy Spirit, am I trying to accomplish your plans for my life by my own effort instead of your power? How? Ask the Lord that question. And the third question is this. That one's based on Galatians 3. You have the reference there in your paper. And I'm, gonna, I'm asking the worship team to come up and just play some music while we pray so that we're not too distracted by the random noises in the room or by the quietness. The third question we're going to ask is this. Heavenly Father, are there any action steps that you want me to take in faith? And that's based on James chapter 2. And you'll, for some people, the answers to those questions are going to overlap. Because it could be that the very thing that he, he says you're doubting him in could, could be connected to a faith step of action that he wants you to take. And for other people, they might be totally separate things. But some of them might overlap. And I pass out a piece of paper like this. I would encourage you as we pray, if you have a pen handy, and I put it on cardstock for that reason, so it's easier to write on. You don't have to write out your whole prayer, although you could. But you might even just write down one word, or maybe a point, or something like that. But you don't have to. If you don't, if you didn't, if you don't have a pen with you, or you are just uncomfortable with writing, then don't. You can just pray in your head between you and the Lord. Sometimes when we write things down, it actually just helps us to remember, so that by the time you walk out the door and you're still holding that paper, you'll have a good chance to remember what you prayed about. 
And so that's why I give it on a piece of paper like this. And the fourth thing that we're going to do is we're going to ask the Lord, after spending some time in prayer, Jesus, who do you want me to share this prayer time with? And I want to challenge you on that. If you talk to somebody, pick, pick somebody, a Christian brother or sister that you trust, and tell them how this prayer time went for you. That will give them an opportunity to do two things. They can hold you accountable to any faith steps that you promised the Lord that you would take. And they'll also give them an opportunity to encourage you along the way. Because typically faith steps <laughs> do well to have some encouragement because they're not easy. Otherwise it wouldn't be called faith steps. And you know what? When you already, and, and I'm purposely telling you before we even pray, that I want you to consider and ask the Lord who he wants you to tell about this prayer time. Because it already is going to solidify in your head that we're not just doing something because it's Sunday morning so we can check the box and, oh yeah, I went to church and prayed. No, that's not over. The, the action comes later. The obedience is probably going to come after you walk out of the building. And if you write down the name of someone you're going to tell about it, it solidifies in your mind that this actually is something taking place here. It's not just some mystical thing that happened on Sunday morning. So why don't you guys join me in prayer? Jesus, we just want to come before you right now. I just declare, Lord, that you are the King of all kings. My brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other countries where they are literally dying for you, perhaps even as we speak, they bow and worship the same Jesus that we are praying to right now. Lord, please help us to not be apathetic in our prayers. And we just want to ask some questions, Jesus, thinking about Abraham and how you testified that your, your followers would do as Abraham did. And so, Jesus, I just want to ask this question. Are there areas in my life where I have doubted or even been tempted to doubt the promises that you've given me? Could you just show those to me right now, Jesus? he brings to your mind if there's an area that you doubt his promise or even be tempted to why don't you just confess it acknowledge it as sin and then ask him to give you the same belief that Abraham had as we continue this prayer, I just ask, is there, are there areas of our lives that we are trying to accomplish your will for our lives, but mistakenly depending on our own human effort instead of your Holy Spirit? Could you just show us right now, Lord, if there's an area where we would be tempted to do that, or perhaps where we have been doing that, Lord, 
the Lord, just in his own gentle way, as he just points to an area in your life that maybe you've slipped into that place, just like the Galatians did, just like these religious followers of Jesus did in John 8, just like I am tempted to do. Why don't you confess that as sin and just ask the Lord to give you the same level of belief that Abraham did, that you would depend on his Holy Spirit. And I would even encourage you to encourage you to declare to Jesus that your desire is to depend on the Holy Spirit. Why don't you tell him in your own words? also want to ask, just like it's talked about in James, are there any faith steps, actions that you want me to take so that I could believe and literally walk out practically my faith just like Abraham did? Are there any action steps you want me to take, Lord? encourage each one of you, if the Lord has asked you to do something that lines up with Scripture, then I want to pray for you that you will have, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters right here this morning and empower them with the, with the grace and the empowerment that can only come from your Holy Spirit, that they would have the, the strength to carry out the task that you're nudging them and asking them to do. Lord, and I pray that your fingerprints would be so all over that faith step that you would be the one who gets the glory. And Lord, I even pray that you would tell us and show us, maybe give us a name of somebody we could talk to and just say, hey, this is what I prayed about in church this morning. And here are some of the things that I could use your encouragement to do. Lord, show us who we should talk to. And then, Lord, if that person wasn't here in church this morning, Maybe you could even give us the words that we could testify about how good you are. And it maybe even explain in our own words how good it is to actually be one of Abraham's descendants in a spiritual sense. We love you, Jesus.